Good morning and aloha. Um, If you'd grab your Bibles um, and turn to Exodus 18 with me, we'll go ahead and read through that together. So starting at Exodus 18, 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Um, when, they have, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will, gui- I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves." So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. You may be seated. Father God, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you, God. God, this is a privilege for us to come and just be thankful for the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. God, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you that you have shown yourself 
through the Old Testament and the New Testament, God, that this is relevant, that this is true, um, God, that we can follow you better by knowing your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way, Lord. I don't have the words to say to express truly what only your Holy Spirit can do. And so we pray that this morning, Lord, you would be directing our hearts to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, good morning. Um, my name is Andrew. Um, I'm, I'm glad and thankful to get the opportunity to uh, go through God's word with you guys this morning. Um, as a church, we've been working through the book of Exodus together. And uh, last week, if you were with us, you remember that Pastor Leo uh, preached on chapter 17, specifically on verses 8 through 16. And that was just a recounting of when Amalek had attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. We saw that the Israelites, from a military perspective, were, were ultimately unprepared for what had come upon them. Uh, they were an untrained army that uh, were not well-versed in the ways of war and battle. But fortunately for the people of Israel, uh, this would be more of a test of where their hope and strength was in rather than military might. God showed that he is the banner that would bring victory and salvation to these people. Not by their own strength, but through his power and his alone. And toward the end of chapter 17, if you remember, we get the confirmation of that victory in this. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. And so throughout these weeks in Exodus, time and time again, we're seeing how God is, is dealing so faithfully and powerfully with these people. And so just a few reminders this morning of how God has dealt with the people of Israel. The Hebrews were in bondage, um, in slavery and fear in Egypt, and God freed them from Egypt. The people come out to a roadblock in the Red Sea, and God creates a way through and swallows them up, and all the uh, swallows up all the chariots who pursued them. They're hungry. God answers with manna. They thirst, and the rock is stricken to provide the quenching of their thirst. And I think if the reader still somehow doubts that God is with these people, this last event of the battle with Amalek is yet one more reason to trust and truly believe that God is fighting for them. And now we get to chapter 18, and we read this passage. I think this passage really serves as a refreshing break in the journey of the people for multi multiple reasons. Uh, one of those reasons is just because simply it records people worshiping God. Um, the chapter is, is naturally split into two more or less separate instances, and the first passage deals with Jethro's arrival uh, to Moses and their conversation and encouraging conversation in that. Um, the second part of the passage takes on more of uh, a bit of a practical housekeeping approach to what would eventually become the judicial system uh, put in place to aid Moses in organizing the Hebrew people. And I won't spend much time transitioning between the two of those after we get going, but I just wanted us to be aware that we're going to draw different but not opposing applications from each of those two portions of Scripture. So as I read this passage, one of the things that I think about is, is how random it might seem. You know, where did Jethro come from and why? You know, why is he trekking out through the wilderness to see Moses and the people? What were the reasons behind and beneath this visit to the mountain of God? And these are questions that I hope that we can walk through together this morning. By the way, the mountain of God mentioned here is, in fact, the same mountain that is referred to with Moses at the burning bush in chapter 3, um, known as Horeb or uh, also Mount Sinai. Uh, in a way, Moses has come full circle to see God's faithfulness to follow through with what God had said he would do for the Hebrew people. 
So Moses is now near that same mountain that he was with at the burning bush, but this time he's with the people of Israel, being already freed from Egypt. So coming back to Jethro, he is not a complete stranger to us. Uh, we remember a bit about him from chapters ago. Moses had fled from Egypt, and he came to a well in the wilderness where Jethro's daughters were. Uh, Moses intervened, saved, saved them, and that was sort of his... Um, initiation into the family of Jethro. We recall that Jethro was a priest at Midian, and we also remember that Jethro gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses as his wife. So we see that there's a long-lasting relationship between Moses and Jethro by this point in time. But after Moses leaves the wilderness uh, to return to Egypt and lead the Hebrew people out, um, we don't really see any more of Jethro until now. Um, Although this passage is a seemingly random event, I can't help but to realize that this visit and conversation we read about here uh, is intentionally orchestrated by God from long before this ever takes place here. God knew the mutual encouragement that Jethro uh, would bring to Moses and Moses to Jethro. And as we work through this passage, I think something for us to ask along the way is, what is God saying about himself? What is the underlying worth of Moses and Jethro's time together? It's important that we are reminded that the hero of the story uh, is not Moses, and as tempting as it is as we read uh, this chapter, as tempting as it is to resist this thought, the hero is not Jethro either. I think if we ask this question and pay attention to what is here, we're going to find the answer within the text. And so we, we read, uh, just a sec, got that. I think being a musician myself, I know what it's like to see an instrument laying on the floor, so should we get that guy going good? Hopefully that's good. Okay. So we read, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So one thing that we can notice right off the bat is that God's fame had already spread. Jethro heard of all that God had done. We can see all that God is doing here in these chapters for these people, from his rescue of them out of slavery in Egypt, uh, to the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, uh, to the defeat of Amalek. And now that news of what God had done had made its way back to the ears of Moses' family, namely his wife's father, Jethro. If you recall, chapter 14 spoke of the reason God was hardening the Egyptians during their rescue, and that was for his glory to be known by them. Exodus 14, 18 says, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So we see that the God of Israel was being talked about in relation to all these things that he was doing. There's no chance that God's power and rescue of these people didn't go um, unnoticed by the people in Egypt. Uh, It would have circulated through Egypt, uh, through the surrounding areas. And if we can imagine, this would be salt in an open wound for Egypt. Um, They had just undergone great loss and expense at their defeat of the Red Sea, and now everyone's talking about it. Chapter 18 here implies that it had made its way to a particular area of the wilderness uh, where Moses had lived before, uh, namely Midian. So we can even imagine that maybe Moses' wife and sons had also been hearing of how God had been working mightily in his faithfulness to the people of Israel, bringing them to freedom and using their relative Moses to enact that freedom. But again, why does Jethro pay Moses this visit? And there's a couple of reasons why we may see Jethro coming out to this part of the wilderness uh, in general. And the first is 
that one explanation is that Jethro was revisiting a plan to meet Moses with his wife and sons at the very place that God had told Moses he would eventually serve him, Mount Horeb. Uh, This theory would explain how Jethro would have known that Moses would be at this mountain. Uh, His family uh, may have even timed their visit sometime after they started hearing of the defeat of Egypt. And so keep in mind the difficulty and danger that Moses would have experienced up to this point. Um, There were uh, the interaction with Pharaoh in general, the plagues uh, coming out through the Red Sea, all of these things um, may have caused him uh, to put his family in safety. And really, through my research, it's only speculation, but there is potential that Moses had actually sent his wife and sons away for safekeeping in Midian and then welcomed them again here in this text. Um, There is a popular but very very different theory on why Moses' family was not with him all the way. I think some of us are puzzled. Why is his family not with him at this point in time? Why are they coming to him now? Um, After all, there were hundreds of thousands of women and children with the great congregation. But the thought that Moses was keeping them safe seems to be the most probable. That's what it seems to point at, is that he had sent them away uh, for the time being, and now they're coming back to him in in the wilderness at the mountain of God. So that's what we're going to work with this morning. This is a family reunion of sorts. And so another potential for uh, Jethro coming out to see Moses is simply to discover more of what he had been hearing of God's amazing deeds. I think regardless of the family reunion plan, uh, this second reason for coming to Moses would probably have happened either way. Uh, this, This reason that Jethro was inquiring about this God of the Hebrews. And so we can see in these verses that Jethro had been affected by God's power displayed through this people. Um, he's, he's interested, he's intrigued. And as you can imagine, many people very likely were as they were hearing about the God of the Hebrews at the time. When Moses had asked to leave Jethro in chapter 4, what we have record of Moses saying is, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. This is far less an event than Jethro is now hearing through the grapevine. What Jethro is now hearing is of events Uh, that only a truly powerful God could accomplish. And it becomes evident that Moses had not simply just checked up on his brothers in Egypt, but that God, even through Moses, was doing amazing things. And so here come Jethro and Moses' family. Moses takes the opportunity to reminisce about what God has done in his own life as well. Um, He does this by bringing into account the meaning behind his son's names. And so we see these two names here, Gershom and Eliezer. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. One way to translate Gershom, um, it's not a common name that we hear today, um, but it would be stranger there, the words stranger there. So Moses is referring to the time of the, in the wilderness after he had murdered the Egyptian and fled. It's almost as if Moses is just adding to this chapter uh, more of God's goodness in his life by bringing up his son's names and what they mean. The reader sees this and remembers what God has done for Moses. And we can actually remember what occurrences had happened for Moses in chapter 2 of Exodus, where 40 years before, Uh, Moses had himself been a wanderer and a foreigner in the wilderness. And so now, as the people of Israel had been living in the wilderness, uh, he then too had felt the discomfort and estrangement of loneliness as he was a stranger there. But Moses had not been left alone, as Eliezer's name would remind. God was his help. 
God had provided and began to restore Moses' life during this time. And it was right about that time that Moses was acquainted with Jethro and his family. This is part of Moses' testimony of God's work in his life, something that ties into this passage at a deeper level than just uh, the meaning of two names. There was actual history for Moses behind the meanings of these names. In transparency, one of my greatest expectations of this passage as I read it and began thinking about what to teach was actually a wrong understanding. My assumption coming to this passage was that Jethro was a man who knew the God of Israel and followed him. There was also a thought that Jethro maybe had even influenced Moses years before when Moses had found himself a foreigner in the wilderness with no God. However, what I have come to understand is that Jethro did not follow God before this event we are seeing in this passage, and it does change the way that we read it if we understand that about Jethro. There's an argument known as the, the Kenite hypothesis, uh, which is, in a nutshell, proposes that the Kenite people, who were part of the Midian people at the time, um, had at some point influenced Moses toward Yahweh. Uh, Jethro, being a priest of Midian, could have also shared Yahweh with Moses. These are some of the opposing viewpoints um, that we traditionally have uh, concerning uh, Yahweh and how um, what we see is uh, Yahweh was introduced to him through the burning bush. But instead, there is reason to believe that Jethro was rather a priest of a pagan god or gods in Midian. A few verses down the way, we'll see uh, how that's support, supported and why we would believe that to be true. And when realizing this about Jethro, the temptation for me uh, is to abandon any respect for him. Um, but as we read together, there's yet hope for this elderly priest, something that resonates for us as we think about what is happening between Moses and Jethro in this passage. And so while it's not completely clear of what Jethro's priesthood uh, was up until this point in his life, what we should focus on is what his heart was doing before this time with Moses and what his heart was doing after this conversation with Moses. Coming from a pagan background, Jethro's faith would, of course, uh, not have been grounded in truth, but rather in false gods. His understanding of things like power and salvation and hope were not tethered to the truth and fullness of the God of the Hebrews, but rather to the failing strength of those like the defeated Egyptian gods. And so God was already challenging the faith of Jethro before he had even reached Moses. He had things on his mind that he wanted to inquire about. As we read, Jethro heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. Jethro had been hearing about the Lord, and Moses was just continuing this evangelism to him as Jethro came, both in the way that he cared for and welcomed him, and specifically in the way that Moses elevated the greatness of God. For example, look at the way that Moses received Jethro. Um, this might be a little bit too much of a reception for some of us from a friend uh, as we arrive at their house, but this would be normal behavior for someone during this time when showing honor and hospitality. Moses goes out to meet Jethro. Uh, he welcomes him into his home. Uh, the host would typically welcome the guests as they arrived. Uh, he also bows to Jethro, which of course has nothing to do with idolatry um, or, or worshiping the gods even of Jethro, but rather because the role of the inferior individual would generally uh, bow to that of the superior. So this tells us too of uh, Moses' honor to Jethro, his father-in-law. And then lastly, Moses kisses Jethro, a sign of affection and love for a family member. We still see this language in the New Testament uh, where we, we hear Paul write in 2 Corinthians, greet one another with a holy kiss. And so all in all, what is notable is that Moses honors Jethro. 
There's no awkwardness or animosity here. Um, there's no regret for letting Moses go from the family business of shepherding that he was doing before he went back to Egypt. Moses does not now see himself as too busy or important for the lowly Midianite priest. Instead, Moses primes the following conversation with both hospitality and honor. Some of you have this gift of hospitality. I have experienced it myself. It's not hard to see when you come across that. It can be as simple as a meal uh, or how you approach an individual and show them you are listening closely. It's not necessarily something that, that we can teach someone. Some have a very natural way of welcoming and loving those around them. And recently, there was a certain pastor on a podcast that said something along these lines. He said, even in our culture, undivided attention, what a tremendous gift that is. With all of the distractions and all of the social media that exists, sometimes it's as simple as just being fully present with another person. He goes on to quote another saying, there are two kinds of people in the world. There's one person who walks into a room and says, here I am. Ego barely fits through the door. And then there's a second kind of person that walks in and says, there you are. Some of you have this care and emotional awareness and love for those around you. Um, it's inspiring and challenging to me, and, and I love seeing it. And you ultimately have what Moses had with his father-in-law, Jethro. But what Moses could have given him in terms of welcoming gifts and cultural norms was nothing compared to what God was doing through him and sharing the good news of the Lord that he was about to share with him. And so we read in verse 8, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. One thing to note here is that Moses was evangelizing to Jethro in this way. He was simply recounting all the things that the Lord had done for him and for the people of Israel. There was no flexing on Moses' part concerning his own faith. The intent of this conversation was to glorify God and praise his name. And Moses had much to share concerning the great things the Lord had done. Riken, in his commentary on Exodus, points out this word told, uh, Moses told Jethro, told is actually the Hebrew word used for proclaiming. So in other words, Moses is not just simply regurgitating information about the Lord. He is preaching to Jethro. And he had much to share about. Um, there were the miracles before Pharaoh and his magicians, uh, Moses could have talked about the plagues and the Passover. He could have talked about the rescue from the land of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea. Maybe the manna that fell from heaven to feed them or the recounting of the rock that provided water which flowed. This was the testimony of the Hebrew people and of Moses, and such a powerful testimony it was. But who did it point to? You know, who did this testimony about God point to? Not Moses, not the people of Israel, but every single event that Moses would retell to Jethro concerning the works of God could only be credited to God himself. Years later, King David would write of the rescue of God in this way. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear will have no lack. A testimony is a very powerful thing. 
but it is powerful not because it's jam-packed uh, with full of great stories or even miraculous salvation and rescue, although this may be your testimony. But the power of a personal testimony is birthed in the purposes and saving power of Jesus Christ. And so with this in mind, how grand and impressive our testimony is not important. What is important is that our testimony of Jesus Christ is brought about by the saving power of Jesus Christ. And so what is interesting as part of this retelling of God's goodness is that Moses does not leave out the hardships that have come upon them in the way. Um, it's an interesting note in there that he doesn't just talk about the good things. He, he includes this in his recounting. You know, our lives are not a sterile Petri dish environment. Uh, there are difficulties, difficulties and disappointments and things that we don't understand now. Uh, but these hardships are a part of our lives. These hardships don't run separately, but rather parallel with God's goodness. In other words, the Lord does not turn a blind eye to those hardships, but he can use them for his glory. And for Moses, all of these elements were part of the saving goodness of God. These verses are an encouragement of what it looks like for us as Christians to live together in the midst of all kinds of issues. Within verse 8 alone, we see a number of encouragements for our relationships. Um, they're, they're almost guidelines to what meaningful, gospel-centered relationships and friendships can look like. What do I mean by that? Um, relationships that are like verse 8 are those where there is reasoning to praise God. We are bringing up what God is doing in our lives. They are also where we can healthily struggle together through hardships and where we continue to be pointed back to live for the one who can finish the good work that he started. Moses simply shares what he knows about God with Jethro. It's pretty simple. He's, he's talking and, and telling Jethro of what he has seen God do. And so you can hear the idols crashing down in Jethro's heart. This is the greatest news that he has ever heard. And so the passage says he rejoices. Verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And at this point of the Exodus, there are a few things so worshipful as, as this response um, of Jethro rejoicing. We're on the heels of God miraculously providing food and water to a complaining people. In the midst of complaining and desire for the ways of Egypt again, we see Jethro reminding us of the beauty of what God was doing amongst these people. Does this challenge us to think about how we communicate our God to others? Um, are, are my words ones of adoration of this great God? Or in terms of evangelism, do even my lack of words of adoration for God communicate a God who is indifferent or uncaring about the condition of people? I've recognized no small lack of this evangelizing in my own life, uh, and yet how effective would this be in the lives of those around us if we just simply shared who God is and the good things he's done for us? For Jethro, the effect is visible. He says, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And this is proof of Jethro's conversion. He is proclaiming God to be the only true God. We can see that within the next few verses, he goes from excited inquirer of God to a man who is worshiping the one and only God. And this is the point where we see Jethro moving into a physical action of worship and actually sacrificing to the Lord and uh, eating bread 
um, with the Israelites. And Jethro was no longer a pagan priest in the wilderness, but a fellow worshiper of the Lord God. And he did this alongside the leaders of Israel. It is interesting to see that there are things sometimes that people can see that others of us are blinded to. On the day that Moses welcomed Jethro, he shed light on what Jethro had been missing his entire life, that the God of the people of Israel was surely the only God. Moses had seen that the Lord was worthy of serving, trusting, and following, and had now done what he could do to share that with Jethro. But the following day, it seems the tables had been turned with Moses and Jethro. Jethro watched as the people of Israel surrounded Moses all day, inquiring of God and asking Moses to help resolve issues that they had amongst themselves. The text says, from morning till evening. So to put this into perspective, just based upon the sheer number of people in the Hebrew camp at the time, this would be roughly as if 6,000 shorebreak churches, yes, 6,000 churches this size, made our way down to Pastor Leo's house every morning, knocked on his door, invited ourselves in, and just started laying our questions and life disputes on him until we called it a day, only to return again the next day and start the process all over again. Um, it would just be insane. And fortunately, we would never do this to Leo, and I expect we would also be able to look on Moses and the people doing this and be able to say, this is just too much. It doesn't make sense. This seems broken. But Moses didn't seem to know much of a different choice. Who else would do this for the people? His concern is marked by his response to Jethro when he says, because the people come to me to inquire of God. So Moses was their leader, and as their leader, he was taking rightful responsibility for their spiritual warfare, uh, welfare. But Jethro saw another way. In fact, Jethro saw without a change, Moses would break in half. And so something or someone needed to help Moses with this burden. So Jethro says, what you are doing is not good. You can imagine that for many of us, um, this correction would be a point-blank, difficult thing to hear. And, and for Moses, it may have seemed even more out of place. After all, Moses is leading a nation and has been involved in the greatest acts of God that these people have ever seen. Uh, he had carried the staff of God. He saw the burning bush and spoke to God through the plagues and complaints of the people. He seemed to be the most qualified and spiritually minded person there. Uh, and Jethro is telling him what he's doing is not good. It was not to Moses' credit or arrogance. Uh, Moses knew this, which he demonstrated by the humility he had shown to Jethro when he came to visit him. And so he listened to Jethro. Moses was not above hearing Jethro out. How good are we at listening? We can learn a lesson from Moses that no matter what God has given us to handle in terms of leadership or people or family roles, uh, we are to walk humbly before one another. Uh, have we given the opportunity to those close to us to challenge us and tell us if the time arises that what we are doing is not good? Why does it matter for us to do this? In Moses' case, it meant the difference between being crushed by an unbearable burden or learning to thrive in the role that God had called him to. What is being asked of Moses here is how to more effectively lead the people as a whole in the midst of all the other duties of judging the people. So if Moses were not informing people of God's statutes and laws, who would? If Moses' time were taken up with counseling the common issues of the people, who would care for the spiritual needs of those same people? 
Jethro wasn't suggesting that Moses would lay down his role as prophet to the Hebrew people. Moses was acting as uh, the voice piece between God and these people, an incredibly important role in this time. Um, You couldn't replace it. And yet, we can even hear Jethro's willingness to be wrong here. Uh, The ESV states, verse 23, as if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. And so um, I read from the ESV this morning, God will direct you. Um, It almost sounds like Jethro is saying that Moses needs to follow these directions, and then God will direct him. But many other translations, however, word verse 23, such as, if you do this, and God so commands. So in other words, he's pointing more toward that being a suggestion of leadership from Jethro rather than a command uh, that needed to be followed. So Jethro is putting this in, in the hands and trust that Moses is already seeking God, and Moses was already seeking God. So for Jethro, it seemed like an easy solution. Find men who can handle the job and who will carry part of the burden. And so this is what Jethro tells Moses. He was specific of the kinds of men that would serve justly under Moses' direction. Um, There was a specific caliber of character that would do well in this leadership position, and it centered in this one phrase, men who fear God. All of the other attributes that Jethro lists, able men, trustworthy, those who hate a bribe, those will all fall in line after fearing God. And something interesting here about the raising uh, raising up of these leaders is that these men were chosen. Uh, They did not inherit the position. So unlike um, some of the other um, monarchies, maybe during this time, as well as uh, the way that priests were chosen, uh, they were chosen for their character and fear of God. Men did not receive this position simply because their father was a judge or a leader. And so Douglas Stewart's commentary on Exodus sheds light in this way. Contrary to the Israelite priesthood, or the ancient Near Eastern monarchy, the Israelite judiciary was to be appointed on the basis of honest and ability rather than honesty and ability rather than occupying office automatically by reason of being born into a hereditary role. So this type of order that God instituted here among the people is unique because its worth is not in the family name of the leaders, but in their obedience and honor to God, which would then trickle down and influence those that they governed. As a side note, as we talked about the expectations of soldiers in the army last week, uh, the commentary also shares that the same people these officials judged in peacetime, they commanded in wartime. And so you'd actually have a structure of almost um, like a community of, of men within Israel that um, these judges or these officials were organizing both in peacetime to deal with their issues, but then they would also potentially call them out to war and even at times lead them. When verse 21 states that these men should be chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually breaking them into specifically uh, thousands and hundreds and so on. Instead, it can be an expression that points more to all the various societal levels. And so it would be interesting that there is an intermixing of Egyptians within this group. If we remember, some of the Egyptians left Egypt with the Israelites Verse 23 says, if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place and peace. So what was the end product of having structure among the people of Israel? What was this all for? There were two main things that would come about. 
through this. These two things would be really a natural result of having a judicial system set up that would help Moses carry the burden of his leadership. The first is that Moses would be able to endure the weight of the ministry to the people. It's a simple point, um, but it's so important, especially as we consider um, churches uh, today and how they're structured with leadership. And the second is that this people also will go to their place in peace. And so ultimately, for Moses to follow Jethro's advice in this, it would bring about more of a thriving in the people's lives before God. Not surprisingly, uh, the way that the local church functions is very much the same way. Uh, I semi-jokingly mentioned earlier about what it would be like if all of us gave Leo a daily visit to seek his counsel in sorting out our lives every day. Um, it's just not a good option for us. It's not a good option for any church um, structure. Someone would need to stop in and tell the pastor what you are doing is not good. And so here's where we see a difference in what the Hebrew people faced and what we faced here. Fortunately, we do have trustworthy, uh, God-fearing people who have been appointed to deacon uh, positions in our church. Um, they help carry the burdens of responsibilities and tasks that shouldn't be carried by one person. And what it does is uh, they help carry that burden. And when this happens, we as the body, we also have more ears to listen um, and can be encouraged and helped in many more ways. <clears throat> Part of this passage in chapter 18 is ultimately a worship service. Moses tells of all the things that the Lord has been faithful in. Jethro rejoices over what God has done. There is fellowship amongst these men as they commune together before God, and they sacrificed to God. Jethro sacrificed to God. These men understood the concept of worshiping their God. They knew what it meant to recall the work of the Lord and then praise him as a response. And so this is what we are called to do in our own worship to God. Together, um, like this morning, through congregational call and worship, we are reminded of how God has dealt so graciously and powerful in our own lives. Uh, through hearing God's word, we are challenged to know the God of, of this Bible and, and worship and respond with more trust and obedience to him. Within his book, Expository Exaltation, author John Piper writes of corporate worship in this way. He says, if it was fitting and good and pleasant for the people of Israel to bless and praise and thank God for his deliverances in the great congregation, it is all the more fitting and good and pleasant for Christians to gather to do the same. And that is what we have done for 2,000 years. When we look back and we read the stories of these Israelite people, there are people freed from their former slavery. Uh, they're brought from the sinfulness of self-reliance into dependence on God and into a growing trust in his faithfulness. Does it evoke a worship within our own hearts? Some might ask, why should it? Why should their deliverance bring about a worship in my heart? <clears throat> Piper furthers it this way. He says, it would be a great anomaly if we discovered that the God revealed in the Exodus is manifestly worthy of a gathered assembly uniting in praise, but the God who raised Jesus from the dead did not receive such united in public worship. Ultimately, what he's driving at is if the Israelites and Moses and Jethro had much to praise God about in, this, in the miraculous things he had done for them, <clears throat> then we have more. We have more to praise God for because we have Jesus Christ. The freedom from slavery in Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna and water of life, victories by God's power alone. <clears throat> 
These works all point to the greater work of Jesus Christ and salvation. Those events in the Exodus point to Christ not because they accomplish the same work of salvation, but instead because they fail to do that work. And they show us that only Christ has completed the work of salvation. Nothing and no one else could accomplish this perfect work. For those who have trusted and believed in Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, to be reminded about our testimony of salvation, there is no small testimony when the greatness of Jesus Christ is what brought it about. There's no small testimony when it is the power of Jesus Christ that is doing the work. So be encouraged that God will continue to the work uh, in you through his Holy Spirit to continue to grow you and encourage you to serve and love him more. And so in closing, I want to revisit the Second Corinthians passage mentioned earlier where the Apostle Paul says this, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. We have been given much in Jesus Christ and in his word. So let's encourage one another to continually look to God's goodness in our lives. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you that you are good to, to teach us through your word, Lord, of what of what it looks like to share um, your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us, God, um, to, to be sharing the good news of what you have done in our lives, Lord, um, both individually and as a church, Lord. Um, God, I pray that you would strengthen us and empower us to love you more and to serve you, God. We thank you for the structures that you've given us, Lord, that our wisdom uh, and discretion to be able to use so that so that people would thrive in knowing you, Lord. Um, God, I pray for Shorebreak. I pray that you would um, grow us together, Lord. Um, you would unite us in our praise for you. In Jesus' name, amen.